Well, as Sheree mentioned, we are going to have a pretty special service next week um, where we set in two new elders, uh, which are overseers, people that give oversight to the church. They do things like they help shepherd the whole thing, to use biblical language. We, uh, they set the doctrine of the church. They defend the doctrine of the church. They deal with issues of disputes. They pray for people, uh, deal a lot with the overall strategy of the church. And we're setting two new elders into place. And I've been talking about eldership and leadership and some of what the scripture has to say about it. Uh, there's lots of different things we could talk about in association with eldership. Um, but we're only going to have time to cover a few of them. I do want to review some of the stuff I talked about last week to make sure that uh, everybody caught it. Um, you guys got my PowerPoint. Did you? I'm going to have you guys click through that for me if you would. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important that we don't stop and take enough time to think about is how important it is to look at the Scripture when it comes to the way we decide to live, the way we decide to conduct ourselves, the way we decide to operate as a church. And sometimes I think there's a misinformation out there that the Scripture is pretty silent about how the church conducts itself, how the church is structured, or what we do in terms of leadership. But hopefully I disproved that significantly to you last week. The Scripture is full of information about what the first century church did out of their experience with Jesus and the revival, if you will, that exploded uh, after Pentecost around uh, that part of the world and began to spread into the rest of the world, we see that they put some practices into place based on principles. And so when we, we looked last week at the idea that the church is led by a plurality of elders, that it was their consistent pattern of the first century church, uh, we looked at a number of examples that you see in the scripture that I have listed there below. So sometimes we stop and think about whether or not the Scripture tells us anything about how we should be led or how we should be structured. Uh, there's a lot of information there. And it's really important how we do it. Because hopefully you understand that when you align yourself with God's ways, you're setting yourself up for a more fruitful process in life. You understand that? Like in any principle of life, whether it be don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, those kind of things, all the way to more detailed things about relating to God on a regular basis, studying His Scripture, uh, getting to know, we, we saying, I, I want to know your heart. We want to understand the mind of God. We know we have the Holy Spirit with us to lead us and guide us. And if we bring ourselves into alignment with the Scriptures and into alignment with the teaching that we see therein, we're setting ourselves up for fruitful life. We want to have fruitful families. We want to have fruitful relationships. We want to be fruitful in our uh, communities, then we look to the Scripture because the guidelines are there and God blesses it when we bring ourselves into alignment. And so when we're looking at the leadership and the structure of the church, we want to bring ourselves into alignment with what we see in the Scripture. Does that make sense? So important that we take the time to do that uh, because it matters. <clears throat> uh, also, the way we structure ourselves, I think uh, there's other, you know, sometimes we can be overly structured, which we'll talk about a little bit, to where the structure becomes the thing we worship and we're not willing to flex for what God wants to do, I don't think that's right. I think we do need to be flexible. The structure is very, very important. Structure can determine whether or not people are actually activated. At the end of the day, we're making disciples. The big picture commission that Christ gave us was to make disciples of all nations. And so hopefully that our systems, it's hope, we're hopeful that our systems and our structure and the things that we do are lined up with the scripture and cause us to be fruitful in activating the gifts amongst us. 
It's my objective in a big picture way that everybody that we have influence with, which includes you that are sitting here listening, become more and more activated in your relationship with Jesus Christ and that the gifts that God has given you and the part that he's given you to play comes to a place of being active amongst us. If our structure doesn't serve that goal, then we're hindering ourselves. It's really important that we look at our structure and our systems to see that they're lining up with the scripture. And that's what I spent a lot of time doing Last week, there's a lot of significant principles that are at stake, and we need to take it seriously. Is there a biblical basis for us insisting on the way that we do church? Yes, there is. A lot of it. So first we looked at the plurality of elders. It's a consistent pattern of the first century church. What's the next one? The New Testament scriptures contain many instructions to the churches regarding their elders. James 5, 1 Timothy 3 and 5, Titus, on and on. There's a lot of portions of Scripture where the writers of the Scriptures are instructing the churches about how to deal with their elders, the people that oversee their work, the people that are shepherding the whole process, the big picture. So when we see all of these examples, we understand that it was the heart of the original writers in the New Testament that there would be elders, a plurality of them, in the churches. Go ahead to the next one that we covered. The New Testament Scriptures also give various instructions directly to elders. There's a lot of, you know, particularly when he's dealing with Timothy and Titus, Paul's writing, giving them instructions directly. Peter gives instructions directly to the elders, giving us this image that these guys expected that there would be elders and there were expectations regarding how the church would operate and how those elders would behave. We don't see a lot of instruction outside in any other sort of position or um, roles in the church, but they, they did put a lot of emphasis on the idea of elders. That's right. Preach it. Uh, we also see that in the book of Acts, particularly in chapter 20, when, when Paul is uh, talking, he has the elders from Ephesus come to him. There was an understanding that those who were overseeing the work in the churches in Ephesus, were the church in Ephesus, were considered elders. Paul has them come to him, and we get a glimpse into how they operated and what their attitude was about eldership. There's a lot of instruction there. So it's not just writing letters of theory, we saw that in the book of Acts, it was actually in action. Having a plurality of elders also lines up with the attitude of Jesus. What do I got there for my next slide? Yeah, having a plurality of elders is harmonious with Jesus' teaching as well as the attitude of the New Testament church. Okay, first of all, the emphasis being on the idea of plurality. No, we don't get an understanding from the teachings of Jesus or the writings of the New Testament that any one individual was to be set apart with some sort of uh, all-supreme power and authority, making all decisions and driving all the decisions uh, and direction of the church. But actually, the attitude is that of brotherhood, of family, of sisterhood, of, of a group of people together that's adopted as one family. And we see that language in Jesus' teaching, and we see it in the teaching of the New Testament church. Which leads me to the next point that I really wanted to revisit with you, and I talked a lot about it last week, but I don't think it can be underemphasized, and it's the idea that the church is a non-clerical community. I think this probably spurred more questions than it did answers last week, because we really are operating in our society, and you know, here we are 2,000 years later. The writings, the, the, even in the original text, the writings still exist, and this message, this agreement between God and man that was ratified all those years ago is still in existence today. But through the ages, 
There have been different types of movements in the church and different things that have happened that kind of give us this foundation for how we think and operate today, and not all of them are accurate. When we take those and we hold them up to the Scripture, they don't necessarily reflect well there. So when I'm talking about what is it, what is um, clericalism? Clericalism is really this idea, you know, it's where, you know, where we get the word cleric, but we, we very easily find ourselves in a mentality where we have a layperson and a clergyman. Somebody that has some sort of uh, ultra-superior role to the average Joe. That somehow they've achieved some sort of status by great behavior or good education or something like that, and now they go to God for us. Now this is an ancient issue. When God began to introduce himself to the Jews, one of the things that they said is they said they were afraid of God, and they, told, they said, Moses, you go for us. You go to God, he'll tell you what to do, and then you come talk to us about it, we'll do whatever he says. And so we see this development of what they called the priesthood. There was, a, In fact, one of the tribes of Israel was completely set aside as priests, and they served before God in the temple and in the tent and in all the sacrifices and all the ritual-type living that the Jews were operating in under the Old Covenant. But that same mentality, when Jesus came, he eliminated the need for someone to be going to God with sacrifices all the time. He became the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sin. He was the final spotless lamb. That's why the scripture sometimes refers to him as a lamb, because that's what they sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. One of, but it was the significant one at Passover. And Jesus fulfilled that. He became the ultimate sacrifice, and there was no longer a barrier between man and God. God wants to reconcile his people to himself, each individual one of you, to bring each one of you into relationship with him. And so he, he cut the, there was a curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from the people, and he destroyed that temple, or that uh, curtain when Jesus died on the cross. Powerful symbolism of God wanting to relate directly to people rather than people relating through other people in order to relate to God. God wants to relate to you directly. This is an important concept when it comes to the structure of the church and the way we treat one another. So what we see happening after the first century church and as history starts to march on, the church begins to adopt practices out of the Roman and Greek world and the Jewish world that it was in. There was a major tension there always between the Jews and the Greeks, which we see in the New Testament writings. But the church over the centuries began to adopt governments, ways of governing themselves that came out of those societies. Not saying that adopting ideas or ways of doing things is always a bad thing, but it, when it begins to take away the foundation of the scripture and replace it with worldly government, then we have a problem. The Protestant Reformation, when it took place, was a significant moment in the church's history. We saw a very, it really was probably at its peak of power. The church had, you know, was uh, very hierarchical, we would say. And there were a lot of statuses and positions. There was a lot of government involvement. The church was the government in lots of places. There wasn't this concept today of the separation of church and state. And with that power comes lots of corruption and lots of practices that don't line up with the scriptures and don't line up with the attitude of Jesus. You have to remember that people, lots of people were illiterate in those days. The people that we would call clergy, the people that were responsible for the church, were very few 
that actually have the scriptures to go from. In fact, sometimes this Bible was literally chained to the pulpit. So people didn't have that. We didn't have the printing press. It wasn't that easy to get a copy of the scripture. But of course, some of you know Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Back in those days, he was a he was a Catholic monk and he nailed his thesis about what he thought was we were, they were making mistakes with. He didn't intend to go against the church at the time. It's just that when he did, he became an outlaw. And he was he was hunted. And even when we started to break away from that clericalism kind of format and start to go back to the scripture and say, what does the scripture say? We didn't come right out of it instantly into something that we would understand today. It take it took it's still taking time. We're still constantly having to go back to the scripture and go, what what was God's original heart and original attempt with the church? Even in those days, there were things that you know did not immediately go away in terms of practices. There's a lot of unhelpful practices and vocabulary that comes with the idea of clericalism. Let me tell you some of them. Clergyman. Layman, minister, reverend, priest, bishop, ordained, ministerial, all misleading vocabulary that we think must be very clearly defined in the Scripture, right, if we use those words in the church? No, they're not there. In some way, shape, or form, some of them are. But we start to add this vocabulary that starts to give us an image of something where you're the reverend. You're somehow exponentially more special than the rest of us. You are the clergyman. I am the layman. I'm not responsible to know you are. And while that's not entirely inaccurate, it's significantly inaccurate. Yes, those who are given responsibility to shepherd groups of people need to wrestle with some of those issues about how to lead, how to teach, how to help one another get where we need to go. But the idea of of titles and positions really messes up mankind. It starts to become something you achieve rather than something you're called to. It's something now where it's not helpful. Our significant professional ministry situation in the world today doesn't really help because we've adopted a system of the world which is if you want to do something, you go get the education to do it and therefore you automatically are that. I'm not against going and getting an education in theology or anything like that. In fact, I I really think that stuff's very good. But we have to understand that we're under the leadership of the head shepherd. He's the one that calls people. He's the one that gives gifts. And when we recognize a gift, if we want to bolster that gift through education or whatever other means, then that's a good thing to do. But we do not achieve position in the kingdom of God through great acts. It just isn't how it works. Because what happens when we start to adopt those kinds of of concepts, it becomes competitive. Well, uh, the leader of the church should probably be the best, fill in the blank. Or the person with the most education. Or the guy that yells the loudest when he preaches. Imagine if those were the criteria by which we decided those things. But actually a lot of the world does. We've adopted world systems, separated ourselves from relationship with God, and just establish institutions that decide these things for us. But that's not biblical. The vocabulary is really important, what we use, because the way you describe things and the words you use automatically create pictures in people's minds. When I say pastor, what do you think of? You think of somebody that's doing what I'm doing right now. The traditional concept of pastor, when you say pastor, that's the first thing. Oh, they're the guy that leads the church. 
He's the guy that administrates communion. He's the guy that does the weddings and the funerals. And he's the guy with the perfect family and the kids who don't make mistakes. That's the pastor. But the word pastor in the, in the scripture, as we talk about many times, is nothing more than the word shepherd. It's only if, if you were to translate, I think more accurately the Greek text, and most seems like most of the more modern translations are going this way, instead of the word pastor, where you see once in Ephesians chapter 4, you would see the word shepherd. And actually some of the translations are doing that. Because what happened in the Protestant Reformation is this movement that was breaking away from the clerical clericalism type system that it was in replaced the priest with the pastor. And really, you could look around today and say there isn't, there isn't much more to it than that even today in the world. Pastors are nothing more than a replicate, replica of the priest, the holy man, the one who somehow achieved this strange, miraculous status, and he's going to be the one that goes to God for us, and he's going to have all the answers, and he's going to do all these jobs. That's not, you know, we got to look at the scripture and go, what was the intent of Christ and the first century apostles in the way they were developing the church? Much more of a community, much more of a family, much more of an adopted group of people who have come together grateful and thankful and spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. That's why we're called a kingdom of priests. We are a priesthood. We are all ministers. You are all reverends. How's that? Man, put that on my desk title, would you? We're all called to minister to one another and to the world around us. There is no elite class of people that does that. That's not how we approach eldership. It isn't how we approach any roles in the church. Yes, there is authority and those kind of things that we have to wrestle with how that works. But this, I mean, I don't know what else, like a superiority complex thing when it comes to this idea of how the church should be structured. But we do not see that in the scriptures. It matters. It matters how we structure ourselves because it can cause people to be activated in their discipleship and their ministry and who they're called to be, or it can suppress them. And we want to have a type of structure that reflects with biblical accuracy and leads us toward the ultimate goal of seeing everyone made into disciples and everyone being activated in their call and their gifts. If things are making that difficult, we have to stop and evaluate. Do we have flexibility in how we structure and how we do our meetings and how long they are? And what time? Yeah, we have a lot of flexibility in the scripture. We see that. But there are some really strong principles when it comes to the idea of eldership, and that's why we have a plurality of elders in the church. The language of family, we talked about this last week just a little bit. The language of family is what is most often used to describe the church in the scripture. We see other things too, like the body, the bride, those kinds of things. Those are also used to describe the church. And all of those metaphors, if you will, are ways of describing it, Give us an idea of what the heart is, God's heart is for this group of people that we are a part of. I think the church is quite literally God's family. If we're his sons and his daughters, we are his family. And he's the head of this family. We don't look to human forms of political government nor business models to determine our way of working together, but rather to the family. The family is the government we look to to help us understand how God wanted us to structure the church. Now, we can take lots of good ideas from the business world. We can look at political systems, and those things can be helpful. 
But the building block of creation was the family. What God designed in the very beginning is a building block for his society. There are different motivations when it comes to business or political power. We would like to think that those that are serving in political power are doing so for our benefit, right? We would like to believe that they love us so much that they're willing to serve in that capacity in order to make the world a better place. But a lot of times we don't get that impression, do we? We see a lot of corruption. We see a lot of issues of power and control. We see a lot of twisting and manipulating of truth in order to control things. Don't get the impression that's what God wants in the church. When we look at businesses, hey, business is great. I think God has a lot of uh, ideas about business and ways of leading business that we would benefit from looking at the scripture. But in, generally speaking, particularly in our part of the world, we go into business to make money, to provide. Some of us don't do that very well. Go into business and like, oh, it's harder to make money than I thought. And so when we look at those systems, sometimes they're corrupt. When we look at how many of you have had an authoritarian boss? Don't raise your hands. They might be in the room. A lot of times in the business world we see, and this is changing. I think there's a lot of healthy things going on. But in the business world, a lot of times it just comes down to, I'm the boss. Do what I said. Now that is the lowest form of leadership if we really want things to be healthy. Sometimes you have to put your foot down and make a decision. We know that. But if we are adopting that mentality when it comes to the church, we start to see a breaking of the family concept of the church. You don't have a say. You can't relate to other people. You just do as you're told, those kinds of things. And actually, that works for a lot of people. They just would rather just show up. You tell me what to do. I'll, I'll be a greeter once a month, and I'll go to heaven then, and it'll be great. Sometimes we are more comfortable in that model of operation. Family's tough, isn't it? Family can be tough. The hardest thing about family is even when they drive you crazy, you still have to love them. But the business model of church doesn't work that way. If you guys get on my nerves, I'm just going to go down the street. Oh, they made me a little uncomfortable. Their music was a little too loud. That preacher yells too much and doesn't smile enough. <laughs> so I'm just going to, it's a product. You're providing me a product, and I don't like the product you're providing, so I'm going to go down the road someplace else. That isn't what the Scripture teaches about the body of Christ, that it's family. I just was in uh, Randy Jerome's home two days ago. Randy Jerome is a longtime member of the church, 1981, I think he came here. And his wife just passed away. And one of the things that his oldest son and he were talking about while we were standing there, he said, it's so good to have community around us, family, people that actually care. They're not just attending. They're not just consuming a product. They're our family. They're people that actually care and love us and will walk through the tough things with us. That takes work, doesn't it, to become a part of family, to embrace others as family, or to put yourself out there as someone that can relate at that level. That's why we do things like small groups, like we want to give people opportunities to somehow relate. It's not easy. Probably one of the number one reasons people don't stick is they have a hard time connecting with community, connecting with who we are and what we're doing and what God's doing amongst us. And they look, they go looking until they find a place where they can connect with the attitude and the vision, but also the community of people they find themselves amongst. Something we should always be challenged about. Are we building community? 
Am I doing my part in the building of this community? Am I both stretching myself out there to inject myself into this community? And am I receiving those that are trying to do so? This is the concept of the church. This is what God has in mind. Brothers and sisters, family, those that will serve together, go through the tough times together, reap the benefits together, be a part of the awesome moments together. That's what God wants in His church. So having authority or responsibility or leadership in community creates tension. I'm going to rabbit trail here for just a few minutes. I was thinking about why is there always tension at the idea of being community and yet somebody having authority. There's a tension that often starts to develop there. How do you be family and yet someone has authority? I want to talk a little bit about just some of my points of view about it. This tension develops because, again, we're talking about foundational things in our kind of American way of viewing the world, making decisions, deciding what is right and wrong, and how we evaluate whether something should work or shouldn't work. I want to introduce you to the idea of humanism. And I'm not an expert on humanism, being humanistic. But the basic thing about, particularly when it started, is humanism wasn't a rejection of the idea that there's a deity. There is no God. Man is God. Man decides his own fate. It's where, the idea, it's where utopia came from. You ever use that, hear that? Utopia, like this perfect place where everything functions the way it's supposed to and everybody has their part to play. As, you know, we talk about utopian society. It comes from this humanistic idea that if man could just make everything perfectly equal and functional amongst himself, then we would achieve this utopian sort of state. It's, it's an outlook or a system of thought that attaches prime importance to the human rather than the divine. <clears throat> and we struggle with that naturally. I want to be God. Nobody tells me what to do. God doesn't tell me what to do. Certainly the preacher doesn't tell me what to do, etc., etc., etc. There's something in our sinful nature that resists the idea that somebody else would have influence on our decision. I'm my own God. We, we have this tendency... This is really a fundamental thing in American society. It's just an underlying foundational component in our approach to thought. Uh, reason is a major component of that. Is it reasonable? Is there something in natural understanding that I can you know, make something sound reasonable? God raising Jesus from the dead is not reasonable. Not in a humanistic mind. The idea that God would divinely inspire us towards something is not a reasonable thought. It's something that takes faith. Belief in something above and beyond that which a rational mind can come up with. We're going to rationalize everything. And if it's not rational, it must not be God. God blows rational out of the water all the time. You read the story of Jonah? So a rational mind starts to go, well, maybe that's just a parable. Maybe it's just a story. In a lot of people's minds, the story of Jesus is just a story. never really happened. It's just meant to teach us something. And yet God has demonstrated himself over and over to mankind that he's not that concerned with their rationale <laughs> or what seems reasonable to them. He inspires us to understand the divine, that which is beyond human. 
But that humanistic thinking comes into play. I am my own God. It doesn't blend well with the idea of there actually being a God. The crux of the gospel really is this. That I would give up lordship of my own life and give it to God. See, sometimes we misunderstand salvation as it's a magic prayer or if I do all these perfect works or whatever different people's concepts of salvation is. At the end of the day, it's that moment when you recognize that there is a God and you give up lordship of yourself to Him. He becomes your Savior. He becomes your God, your King, your leader, your shepherd. The crux of the gospel lies in that idea that I give up my Godship, if you will. Explains a lot about why we battle over forms of government. Oh my gosh. I hope you're getting more information about what's going on politically than what you see on Facebook. Why do we do this? Why do we get in this really ultra-vile state of mind where we're willing to violate most of the tenets of Christianity in order to fight with our brothers and sisters about something in the form of government in the world? All the governments of men will fail. You know that. Because man decides. He's rejected the idea that God is his king. And he's going to be his own God. And so we have these battles over how that's going to happen. And I think, you know, we have to. It's not like we, you know, we're living in a world that doesn't believe in God. We do have to wrestle with what types of government we believe in or those kinds of things. But it explains why it's so tense. Because I'm God, aren't I? I decide. I vote. I choose my own destiny. There is no divine Nobody tells me what to do, all that kind of thinking. You see that selfishness? Really, it's selfish, isn't it? And that's our tendency as humans. But when we start talking about being a family and being community and that someone would have authority, tension starts to rise. Because we don't want somebody to be in a position, in a shepherding position, or in authority over our lives, or having any sort of direct involvement. I mean, if I just show up and I listen to J.R. preach, and I go on about my week, I don't have that much influence in that person's life. They're not, they don't have to worry about it. It's easy to keep people at arm's length. I don't want them in that close. I don't want that family feel. I don't want to be in that tight of a community. I don't want to be that accountable. I don't want people having that much input in my life. And yet that's a contradictory thought to the pattern of Scripture, which is we submit one to another. That iron sharpens iron. That there's accountability amongst us. Not one that seeks to break and hurt and cut, even though sometimes accountability hurts. It is for the good. It's for the love of the people. There's a foundational component in the family. Can't really do this without love. Can't really operate like with accountability and all those kind of things if don't really have love for one another. If our true underlying motivation isn't love, we can't really expect to succeed. So if we want to build community, which is part of our mission statement around here, it's got to have that family feel, but it's got to be driven by love for one another. A desire to see one another thrive, to come into our callings, to see our giftings activated, to see our relationships with Christ grow. But that is contrary, contrary, contrary to humanism. I am a strong believer that God gave you a brain for a reason and intends for you to use it. Okay, so I'm not saying that we don't use logic or reasoning or rationale. Not saying that we just sit in our chairs and let God do everything. God partnered with man. He 
He gave man stewardship. He charged him with subduing the earth and ruling over it. There's action to be taken on our behalf or on our part, for our part. So yes, we do engage our brains in those kind of, you know, not saying that some of the things that come with humanism are entirely wrong, but we need to be careful how much they drive the way we evaluate and the way we make decisions. If I'm God and you're God, tensions are bound to arise. And when some other God decides to put somebody else over you, you get uncomfortable with it. But I would suggest that if we come to a right understanding of the way authority works in God's family, there's no reason for that tension to exist. Not if there's love. Not if there's understanding. Not if there's a sense of togetherness in what we do. It can make all the difference. I think there's another thought that comes with the two is that if someone is in authority, then I must be underachieving. If, if so-and-so, if, if Jeff's being ordained as an elder next week, what am I doing wrong that I'm not ordained as an elder? Am I underachieving because someone else is receiving some sort of status? They wouldn't even call it that. I think that's what we start to wrestle with those tensions. And if we have this hierarchical, clerical, works-based, non-family form of government driving the way that we understand things, then we have lots of opportunity to feel that way. But when we understand that someone that is given authority in some area of our life is put in that position by God as a family, then it's something that we can navigate well. You see, when we put these guys into a position of eldership, we're not necessarily suddenly going to expect all this amazingness to flow from them. Well, I kind of do, guys, just a little. I think we do that. It's like, oh, once we have the title then we will be something. No, that's not how it works in the kingdom. Oftentimes, it's really the other way around. There are people that probably in this congregation that pastor circles around me. They're gifted at something. They do it really well. These guys are, have been showing themselves as leaders for many years. It's not like all of a sudden there's just going to be this amazing shift and you're going to see them in the pulpit all the time, or a bunch of other stuff's going to happen. It's a natural, organic development in their leadership. So we would say about just about any gift, or any position in the church, that generally speaking, people are doing it long before we really recognize that they're doing it. That's natural. It's a natural development of gifting. It's natural progression. I don't know, if I'm running a business, and it's a family business, and one of my brothers is excellent at accounting. I'm going to see that naturally developing. That accounting will be going on. His nerdiness will be driving me crazy. And suddenly one day I'll recognize, that guy is called to something. He's gifted in this. Let's empower him even further in that gift. I think it's interesting when we talk about the professional sort of clergy mentality, uh, we expect, I mean, this 18-year-old kid graduates high school. He goes to four years of Bible college. He's 22 years old, and we have this expectation that he's going to be this pastor. What a ridiculous expectation. He might be gifted and trained, but these things take time. They take experiences. You don't just give somebody a position, and then all of a sudden they mysteriously fill it. A lot of times we just see these things developing naturally in people's lives. What's naturally developing in your life? 
or those around you? What do you see rising up as strengths, gifts, abilities? We need to keep activating those, and this is one of them. We recognize that we, we believe we have a couple of guys who are going to be gifted and have already been gifted in overseeing, shepherding, and driving the overall direction of the church. Corey asked me if he was going to get a sword. Like, I could do swords. That does sound like a good idea. We ought to get a sword. No, we don't, we don't do something where it's like, yeah, we're going to celebrate it because it's a big deal. It's really awesome. Some of the weight is going to get distributed. I forgot to tell him that part. Anyway, it's good stuff. The principles of God are hostile to humanistic thinking. Authority becomes oppressive. We have to be sure that we're deciding what we believe about authority from a biblical standpoint, not a humanistic standpoint. We have no greater example than Jesus Christ himself. When it comes to the idea of what does leadership look like in community, if it's not hierarchical, clerical, ultra-authoritative, qualified and disqualified kind of things, yes, there's different, differing degrees. I would suggest that you're all shepherds. You are all shepherds in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's you're totally alone and you're the only person you're responsible for, you're still shepherding your life. If you're married, if you have kids, if you have friends, you are a shepherd. You're one of the, you're, not that they're like these, you know, we're together. And all of us is kind of helping move things along in people's lives. And the scripture is full of great instruction about how we shepherd wherever we find ourselves. Whether it's a really small few people or it's over whole churches or even groups of churches. Shepherding principles are the same. and you have a responsibility in that as well, as an individual. So where do we look? And we look at the scripture, we look to see that Christ is our greatest example of really what authority looks like in the kingdom. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that although he was very authoritative at times and he led with authority, by the way, nobody gave him a title. You ever notice that? He didn't become Rabbi Jesus and then achieve from there. He just naturally it was part of who he was. But nobody was ever too low for him. How many authoritative systems do you see in the world where there are people that are just too low for you to associate with? Because you're way up the chain, way up the food chain maybe, way up the chain of authority, chain of command, whatever you call it, and you're not going to associate with the low. Jesus associated with everybody. Why? He loved everybody. Status was irrelevant, whether it was wealth, education, anything. He associated with everybody. The story where he, this Pharisee invites him over to the house, um, just in case you think I'm lying, it's in Luke chapter 7. A Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house, and a woman of the city comes in, and she weeps on his feet and kisses his feet and washes his feet with her hair, and she pours this perfume stuff on there, and the Pharisee is appalled. If this guy were really a prophet and knew who this woman was that was touching him, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Of course, Jesus knows his thoughts because he's Jesus. And he asks him a question. Somebody owes 500 denarii and somebody owes 50. And that debt is wiped out. Who loves more? He's like, well, the one who was forgiven the 500. And then he talks about this woman. 
And he said, go, your sin, at the end of his speech, he says, go, your sins are forgiven. It didn't, it, just anyone. Jesus loved everyone. When, as we grow in our authority and understanding, whether it's in our community or in our business or in the church, and God seems to continue to entrust us with more because that's really what it is, really all it is, it isn't title and status, is that God continues to trust with more. And then we would call that authority, but really it's a greater responsibility in shepherding. Jesus associated with everyone. Why? Because he was motivated by love. He was the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. All of us. See, we, we get a little weirded out when we use the word prophetic sometimes, if, you, if you're not familiar with that. But really, every one of us has a relationship with God, hears from God. You might not boom voice from heaven right into your ear canals, but he's in here speaking, encouraging, prompting, challenging you. Every one of us hears from God. Every one of us is a sheep in that flock. We know him and he knows us. He was a good shepherd. He related directly to the sheep. Authority or leadership or shepherding, whatever you want to call it, it it's sacrificial. Earlier in that same chapter, just a few verses prior, John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That don't fly in most of the world. It doesn't fly in most businesses. It doesn't fly in the government. Laying down the, your life for those who you have responsibility for. I want to read to you this passage of Scripture. Uh, it's First Peter. Yeah, part of it. Up. That's my next slide there. It's First Peter chapter 5. Yeah, there we go. No, no, that's not it. I didn't write down the address here. Well, I'll start reading it. Maybe I'll remember. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Okay, we're in Philippians chapter what? Four? Two? Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had every right to be even heavy-handed authoritative. He's the ultimate authority. And yet in that power, he demonstrated for us how he expected us to handle our own authority and our own shepherding to the extent that we would lay down our lives for one another even unto death. In humility, counting others better than ourselves. If we adopt these, 
these principles from the nature of Christ and implement them into our community and the way we treat one another and the way we shepherd one another, wow, what could stop us? What kind of healthy life? What kind of vibrant activity? What a strong community. Man, the gospel would be powerful amongst a group of people like that. And that's what we're hoping for. We're all shepherds in some capacity. But we need to be shepherds like Jesus was.